Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Mother, I want to be an actress. You must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. So, kid, how'd you like to be in pictures? The first million-dollar contract in the motion picture industry. All hail the king and queen of Hollywood. I'd like to thank the Academy for this award. Who's Mary Pickford? The end. Let's talk about Mary Pickford. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1909, the first Lincoln pennies were minted. Joan of Arc was beatified. A 22-year-old Alice Ramsey from New Jersey drove herself and three girlfriends on an epic road trip to become the first woman to drive across the United States. Both the NAACP and the first University of Nursing in the U.S. were both established, and New York City's Queensboro Bridge opened. Leo Bakeland patented Bakelite, and the plastic industry was born. Jessica Tandy, Errol Flynn, Harriet Nelson, Burl Eyes, Vivian Vance, and Kwani Nkrumah were all born. And in 1909, the future Mary Pickford stepped in front of a moving picture camera and into her role as America's sweetheart. Gladys Louise Smith was born in Toronto, Canada on April 8, 1892, the eldest of the three children of John Charles Smith and Charlotte Hennessy Smith. Though you should know that her birth date, at least the year part of it, <laughs> becomes sort of a variable commodity. Um, let us just say it's important for a child actress to stay younger longer for marketing purposes. <laughs> but we're not there yet into child actress status. Let's go with the life of Papa, who was the son of a recently impoverished family. His was the first generation to struggle. That is a serious bummer. Um, family lore points to Grandpa's bad investments. Common sense will point to the family's 12 children. <laughs> and Papa himself was an extraordinarily impractical dreamer. He bounced from job to job, perfectly acceptable jobs, I guess, store clerk, bartender, stagehand, which kind of ventured at this time into the sketchy. He was never steady. In fact, their little family moved quickly and quietly from house to house, often in the dead of night, just ahead of landlords and bill collectors. His glorious mustachios are not going to pay the rent. Get a resume. <laughs> or take a look and see how much drinking he does on the side. That might tell you something, too. Yes. Mama Charlotte's family had come to Canada from Ireland, although Charlotte and John didn't meet until they were actually in Canada. It wasn't something that they met somewhere else. Charlotte's father, like her husband, loved to drink, but Charlotte's mother didn't touch the stuff. And she wasn't shy about sharing her beliefs and her opinions on sin. She would go into houses of negotiable affections and... <laughs> preach at the women that were working there, telling them about their sins and where they were going to take them. That's the family that Charlotte grew up in. That was actually kind of called a mixed marriage back in the day between a middle-class Protestant man and an absolutely irresistible powerhouse Catholic farm girl. That was actually a shocking coupling of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa. Okie dokie. <laughs> The little family had grown to two little sisters and another baby on the way when Papa just 
left. Moved away and left. Mama, to save face, began to call herself a widow because that, if you're a single lady, is a respectable position in society. But the facts are she had a living husband, likely in a bar across town the whole time. Mama kind of fell apart a little and the children were farmed out for a while to relatives. You know, I don't know what else she could do with no income, but she eventually started to pull herself together and come up with a plan. Charlotte began to bunk in with her children and she rented the big bedroom to respectable single women, you know, the like, teachers, seamstresses. Um, It's not a lot of money, I assure you, but it is something at least. And she began taking in sewing work, the classic refuge of women left to their own devices in history. But maybe Mama was better able to switch back to working since before her marriage, she had actually spent a couple of years working in an upholstery factory. So at least she was sort of accustomed to being out in the working world. Well, Grandma Hennessy lived with them. And also, Mama's sister Aunt Lizzie and her husband seem to be in the orbit. They seem to be members of the household. And some sort of village seems to have been established. Now, Gladys's father did die, but not until she was five years old. So there is a gap of a few years when he existed, but not in their life. He was working on, I guess you'd call it some kind of vacation steamship, like um, the good ship Lollipop (laughs) or something like the Viking River Cruises, I guess, of their their day, although not as glamorous. And he uh, was hit in the head by a giant pulley in a workplace accident. That will leave a mark. And he died six months later than that accident of a cerebral hemorrhage. But the story is very confusing to me because Mary Pickford's recollections of her father's death, she seems to regard this as one of the turning points in her life. You know, he died at home. Her mother's scream will never leave her memory. Um, She remembers her mother banging her own head on the wall and blood running down her face. And she remembers kissing her father in his coffin. But my question is, did he die at home? Because he hadn't been there in years. And did the steamship company just have that address on file as where to take someone after a workplace accident? I'm really confused by this. I agree with you. That's what I had actually assumed, that he was sent back to his family and that's where he died. That's the impression I got. But I did not buy her cheery family suddenly having this terrible thing happen to them when he died because they were living pretty meagerly to begin with. Well, did it blow the widow story? I mean, how embarrassing, though. You've been like, oh, I'm a poor widow who has to, you know, sew to support my children. And then some guy comes home from work. (laughs) Maybe it was she passed him off as her brother or something. Well, we have no details on how he covered (laughs) up the obviously (laughs) sketchy situation. But either way, at this point, Papa is really gone for real now. Um, No one has to concoct any stories. So Charlotte actually took work outside of the house in a factory. And there was sort of a good faith attempt to send Gladys and her slightly younger sister Lottie to school, the Louisa Street School. But um, Gladys in particular seemed to get hit with every dang childhood and adult disease under the sun, just one after the other. Tuberculosis, pneumonia, diphtheria, which killed a lot of people, especially children in this decade. And often the whole family was quarantined as a result of this contagion and fear. Uh, If it was anywhere, it found Gladys, which is my son's freaking first two daycare years. Do you remember? (laughs) I didn't. My kids were in daycare, but it would be kindergarten years or preschool years. Yeah. They got everything. If it was out there, 
They got it. It was like magnetic. I don't know what it is about small children. Maybe it's all the snot. They have a lot of snot. <laughs> they do. Cause and effect, I just don't know. Uh, in fact, okay, so the doctor was called so often to their house that he became sort of a family friend, and his last name was actually Smith. I don't think that's very remarkable, actually. <laughs> no, not very much. Uh, this doctor, one G.B. Smith, no relation, was a rich married man with no children of his own. He offered one day to adopt Gladys to give her a good life and a better chance at a future. Because at least that's one less mouth that Charlotte had to feed. And of course, at first, Charlotte is like, no way. But in her own family growing up, there had been exactly such a situation. I mean, this isn't new. We saw this way back in Jane Austen. One of her brothers became an extraordinarily rich man by this exact same thing happening. So Lizzie, Charlotte's sister, had had a chance like this. Her parents had said no. And it seems to have colored the rest of her whole life with giant resentment. Like, uh, you know, how dare you hold Gladys back from her one opportunity, kind of. And it wore on Charlotte a little bit. And she kind of decided to give it a chance. And Charlotte put her daughter in her fanciest dress, which you know was not that fancy, and went to the doctor's house where they had already set up a bedroom for her. That's how confident they were that this was all going to work out. She had a little lace coverlet. She had white paint on the wall. She had toys in there. It was they were going to make their case, you know, dirty. <laughs> <laughs> well, they wanted her. I don't know that it was Dirty as much as it was anticipatory. I know, but they're not playing fair. Well, so Charlotte just sat there and listened while these rich, kind people told her seven-year-old daughter all about what she could expect if she chose to become their little girl. Your own pony, ice cream, every day. Chicken every night if you wanted, which was an unimaginable luxury before the Depression, actually. Your own chicken every night? Because, you know, eggs were more important and they came every day. Well, um, so Mama's heart, I just don't know. I can't imagine because Gladys was obviously all about it when they left. She was skipping on the way home like, I cannot wait to give my brother and sister rides on my new pony cart. I am always going to give grandma the biggest piece of pie because I'm going to ask for pie every night. And they said they're going to give it to me and I'll make sure grandma gets the biggest piece of pie. And she was just not completely in the picture. And Mama, Gladys is very clear about this, knelt down in the street, despite the dirt and the horse poop and everything, to look right into her eyes and said, no, honey, if you go there, you don't belong to me anymore. You're not going to see us anymore. You're going to be Mrs. Smith's little daughter. You're not my daughter ever again. And she had to be firm. Like, you don't get it. I will not see you anymore. And she's like, you don't want me? You don't want me anymore? And of course, what? you know, crying, of course. And, you know, of course not, honey. I love you. I will always want you. But I can't give you any of those things. Not ever. I can't. There's no possibility. You're never going to have a pony. We might look at ice cream in a window. And Gladys didn't want any part of that. She put her foot down. She's like, nope, not going to happen. And once she really understood what this meeting had been about, what the situation actually was, Gladys declined the good doctor's offer of adoption. Do you think they had to call a different doctor? Like, was it too awkward from then on? <laughs> no, I think they still use the same one because I think that they were kind enough. Like, it sound, they sounded like a very kind couple. Yeah. So I, I think they probably got over it. I say no, but 
We're just speculating here. So it was this event and also her mother's pretty open, unwise, in my opinion, stress about making ends meet that sort of changed little Gladys into a little adult. She would ask her mother, when can I start earning money? When you're 10, mother would say, 10, (laughs) you guys, when you're 10, you can start earning money to pay the rent. That is not... It's a little too young, you're thinking. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking so. But, you know, to her, it seemed so far away. So what happened was Gladys kind of became the stay-at-home parent instead. Her siblings used to call her the big stick. (laughs) (laughs) She was the hammer. And she wrote that this period of her life caused, and I quote, a determination was born in me that day that nothing could crush. I must try to take my father's place and prevent anything from breaking up the family for the rest of my life. So what it also did was put her on a little more even footing with her mother and their relationship changed a bit from mother and daughter to more equal. They're not equal yet, but It's certainly not a little child with her mother relationship at all. This kid's taking on a lot of responsibility and she's, you know, she's stepping up to the plate to do it. And Charlotte was letting her. I know, I know. They kind of became more peers than mother and daughter. Well, an opportunity came when Gladys was around eight years old, though accounts, even her own, will tell you she was five. Just know whatever age you read, she was probably younger. So um, just like everyone in the breakfast club, except for Molly Ringwald being well into their 20s. That's all I'm saying about that. Um, So actors, man, actors. Well, um, mother had for the first time rented the big bedroom to a married couple. This was the first time there'd been a man in the house. Even him being married was still looked at kind of sketchy and even more sketchy. The husband, Mr. Murphy, he was the stage manager at a local theater called The Princess. A stage manager. These are theater people. Oh, no. And he had two parts for children, local children, in his latest production, which was called The Silver King. How about sending these kids over to earn a little cash? It was easy for him. They were in the house. He needed to fill these two jobs. No skin off his nose. It's $8 each for eight performances. That's $225 in modern money each for an eight-year-old child and a six-year-old child. That's pretty good. <laughs> it is, oh, definitely. Especially for a child like Gladys who wanted to contribute to the household. So, Hmm, the theater. It was kind of a weird dilemma to find herself in for a woman barely holding on to respectability there at the bottom of the lower class. This association with the low elements of the theater, I just, I just don't know. Actresses. How come the word actor never got said in that tone? That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Actors, perfectly fine, but actress... Mm. Still, it was a lot of money, and this theater was not exactly a dirty hole or anything. It sat 1,500 people. There were electric chandeliers. That's fancy. There's velvet all over the place, boxes for people to sit in, elaborate plasterwork. It was fancy. And the people did seem nice once she met them. She went backstage for a little preview about what she was throwing her children into, um, as so often, people you're doubtful about once you meet them in public become perfectly fine. <laughs> she was just working from theory, though. You know, the, the theater, it's all not respectable. And she hadn't 
been. It wasn't like they were theater going people. You go back and they're actresses. Those actresses are knitting things like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought you'd be drinking things. Oh. I love this building, too. It's not it wasn't like a theater now. Like, you know, you just go in and there's the auditorium. This whole building, it had a ballroom and an art gallery and a drawing room. I mean, it was fancy. It was a big deal building to go to. So I can see why Charlotte finally acquiesced. So, okay. Okay. We'll go ahead and do it, sir. Yes. And Gladys filled two small parts. One was a boy and one was sort of the neighborhood mean girl. It was classic melodrama. If you've ever been to one of those 1800s museums like Cowtown in Wichita, it's the, you must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. You know, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> the villain is the villain because you know by the music that the piano guy plays, you know, <laughs> has the mustachios. It wasn't high art, but it was, it was a classic. And Gladys watched this other girl, the one who was actually in the company and had a lot of lines. And she's like, huh, what would that be like? How do you get that? Well, she got herself into another one of these kind of parts. This was a very common occurrence. Little roles that it wasn't worth paying transportation, food, and housing for the theater company, you know, to so they would just kind of cast around in the city that they landed in for children for these little tiny parts on their tours. Mm-hmm. If anyone has read the Betsy and Tacy books, this is the central plot of Betsy and Tacy Go Downtown, which I'm going to link you to because that is actually one of my very, very favorite books from when I was a little kid. They got cast in Rip Van Winkle and then they got cast in Uncle Tom's Cabin. I missed those oh my gosh they're so cute seriously oh maybe i'll maybe i'll pick one up and take a look i missed those completely what actually there's a reference to it in um you've got mail what is her name meg ryan is showing the little girl these books and she said it's all about betsy and tacy and their friend tib whose name i'm sorry to say is thelma and the little girl makes a face that's the betsy and tacy books oh wow How do you remember that? I have no idea. (laughs) It's like a garbage heap in my head. All I remember from that movie is caviar is a garnish. So Gladys got the bug bad, bad. When old Silver King came back to town... Which seems weird, but it was sort of a theatrical standard. Like, it's a reliable, if you're a theater owner, butts in the seats, crowd pleaser... It's a return journey. Everybody comes back. And so mother went and hauled Gladys over because as far as she knew, she was going to make the case to play boy and mean girl again. She did it before, you know, knows the part. Easier for you guys. And then what a surprise then that eight-year-old Gladys had another idea. She spoke up and she said, I want the main part. I like the story of her technique because it's something she is going to turn into her modus operandi. She looked up at the lady in charge with her big eyes up to the producer and said, please, lady, let me try. And it was like the irresistible kitten from Shrek. (laughs) To quote the original Karate Kid movie, no can defense. (sighs) She was bowled over. Okay, that's fine. And mother, of course, was just convinced that Gladys could not do it because Gladys could not read. Yes, she had missed so much school from sickness and from moving. And also mother had pulled them out of school entirely after an incident with the teacher. The little girls had to get themselves to school because mom went to work every morning. And, you know, maybe they lelawed around. 
like you do, but they came to school one time too many late. And the teacher said, look, if you're late one more time, I'm going to call the devil and he's going to show up with a wagon and take you to hell and you'll never see your mother again. I do remember that story. <laughs> well, but Gladys was a determined little person. Uh, in case any of you were thinking this is a stage mother situation, because that would be your first guess, I can tell you there are some ambitious undertens in the theater world. Every one of the orphans in any production of Annie you've ever seen would give up Christmas for a chance <laughs> at the big role. They would stoop to sabotage. I've seen it with my own eyeballs. I'm just saying, do not be fooled by curls and an innocent expression. <laughs> well, Mama rehearsed with her and she got it. Uh, 14 bucks a week. And not only that show, another and another. I get the feeling that once you're in, they just keep casting you out of like relief because you're a known quantity. Oh yeah, call that one girl. Remember that period of time when every single thing with a kid in it seemed to be Dakota Fanning? <laughs> well, I think that's cyclical like that with a bunch of different actresses. But yeah, it was there was times in between. It wasn't steady work for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, she got the role, the coveted role of Little Eva in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which opened on her ninth birthday, although you'll market it as her seventh birthday. Um, this was the pinnacle of little girl stardom, like Annie is today, or even Matilda more recently. Little Eva, who dies melodramatically at the end after begging her father to free his slaves. It was a classic tearjerker. So you would think superstardom. I guess, right? You know, you are now playing the, in capital letters, little kid part. Well, no, mostly theater didn't work like that. Everyone but maybe 20 people in America were anonymous touring company players going up and down and all around the United States and Canada playing one night stands in Dodge City or Decatur. The touring life was not glamorous. They were sleeping on train seats or in ratty condemned boarding houses. All of the kids, because everyone was acting and traveling at this time, got very adept at sleeping while leaning in a corner, a talent she took to adulthood, frankly. Um, they would have to eat stale food that the train cafes were getting ready to throw out or sandwiches they'd packed in the morning and didn't get to eat till nine at night. Sometimes... The audiences were just there to heckle you. That was a super fun night after drinking it up all day. The whole throwing rotten tomatoes came from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Although you, I could almost imagine them like trying to catch the tomato. <laughs> like, oh, just for a little vitamin C. That's right. Gladys started to go by Gladys Milborn Smith. I guess that was fancier. Yeah, she never liked Louise. I mean, she made that abundantly clear. <laughs> Sing out, Louise. You know what that reminds me of? Gypsy. Sing out, Louise. <laughs> anyway, so there were times that all the family was in different cities, weirdly, for months, months and months. And technically, Gladys and her sister would be assigned a, quote, chaperone if they had to be away from their mother. But this was usually another actress in the company who... Honestly, and justifiably, resented being given all that responsibility for no additional pay, and she usually did not do a whole lot of supervising. 
let's just say the years from 9 to 15 in Gladys's life were sort of either the school of hard knocks or the school of street wisitude. And it was also the school of acting. She did want to perfect her craft. I, that's a fancy way of saying it. She did want to get better. She wanted to get the better roles. She wanted to act well. It was a hard life and it was not a life I would want to see any child going through, but it prepared her for the rest of her life in a, so many ways that it's invaluable. So at 15, Gladys was literally couch surfing during a job in New York City when something just kind of broke in her, like <laughs> something has to change around here. This is no life. I mean, I'm a slave to producers. They made all the money. They have all the power. I have to go every time I need a part and kind of tap dance around and hang around someone's lobby and flirt with office boys just to get a part. And she decided that she was just going to aim high. She is going to find some way to pitch herself to the golden boy producer and writer superpower of the time who's a man named David Belasco. And you should think here maybe of Lin-Manuel Miranda here, the Hamilton man. This was the, the kind of industry phenomenon that David Belasco was. So imagine a high school student who wanted to act decided, well, you know what? Screw all this low-lying high school musical stuff, I am going to pitch myself to Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> That's what we're doing right now. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. But she did. She set her sights high. She wanted to be on Broadway. She wanted to do the bigger roles. Although she had a backup plan, she thought maybe she could work in the fashion garment industry somehow. She did get a part-time job pulling threads um, to make a little bit of money, but that was just like a backup. That was a plan C as far as she was concerned. So she tried and tried and tried to get in to see him with about as much success as you'd expect. Letters in the trash, showing up at his office, kicked out, waiting around where he might be, blocked by security. She had been sending him pictures over and over through the mail of her doing different expressions, you know, to try to get his attention. I mean, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So she took a step back. She's a smart cookie. And she looked around and one of Belasco's actress friends, one of his inner circle, was playing at a theater where Gladys had worked before. Okay. And now it's like some kind of heist movie. A friendly doorman she knew from her time there sneaked her in the back door. A crew member she knew from something else introduced her to this actress's maid and Gladys charmed the maid into getting her boss to provide an introduction to Mr. Belasco or at least actually not an introduction it was more like okay she can use my name with him and see if he'll take a meeting that's as far as she was able to go <sighs> but that's more than she had before so she parlayed that one fine use my name to get in and she got as close as Mr. Belasco's assistant and Gladys is so good in the room <laughs> you know this little tiny beautiful person is shrieking, my life depends on seeing Mr. Belasco. <laughs> and so this assistant like opens the door. What on earth is happening out here? And, and your life, what? What is this about your life? And I think her like stomping foot and her big eyes and just her attitude amused him so much that surprise, surprise, Mr. Belasco himself agreed to meet her after a show of his. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So she comes backstage. This time, no sneaking. She's been invited backstage. She goes back there. And the great man says, what's your name? And she says, Gladys Milborn Smith. Yuck. No. Make another one. <laughs> uh, tell me some other names in your family. And she listed them. La, la, la. And when she got to Pickford, he goes, OK, Pickford. OK, give me uh, what's your middle name? 
And she lied, maybe, or this might be her baptismal name. She said, Marie. And he goes, okay, that's good. That's good. Marie Pickford. Mary. Mary Pickford. The trumpets play. That's right. (laughs) And this is going to sound bad. And it is. But he said that her confidence amused him coming out of such a frivolous package. (laughs) so he's like all right mary pickford come back tomorrow and you can show me what you can do and you know we're gonna call her mary i think from now on it's easier (laughs) i I know i mean no no offense to the gladys's out there but mary is a prettier name to say (laughs) (laughs) did i ever tell you i found out that my friend mary spelled her name m-e-r-r-i-e and it kind of blew my mind for a while even though there's no apparent reason it should have you know, you get an image behind it, right? So you think of Mary as one th- way and then traditional, and then you throw in an IE and it's all crazy. It's like frivolous. I got her wedding invitation. I like had to lay on the couch. Like, what just happened? My whole world. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> to a lesser degree, finding out someone's Canadian is sort of the same thing. Like, really? I know. I think This American Life did a whole entire show on who's Canadian. Like, why is that weird when you find out someone's Canadian? But it is. <laughs> from the very first thing that I read about Mary Pickford was that she's from Canada. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's North America's sweetheart, not just America's sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Little, little bit of mind blown there. I'm sorry to say she blew that audition. <laughs> I don't think it mattered, but wrong material, not enough rehearsal, um, horrible stage fright. But she had a presence. This David Belasco was no fool. And he saw something in her. He asked her um, at one point, so you want to be an actress? And she said, I'm already an actress. I want to be a good actress. Like, okay. (laughs) There you go. Well, he got her a mentor, which is what she needed, really. Like an experienced actress in the field. He gave her a part on Broadway, not a big part. She sent her mother a telegram and it said, Gladys Smith, now Mary Pickford, engaged by David Belasco to appear on Broadway this fall. I know. That's really cool. Mary Pickford was now operating at the highest level of live theater with a good circle um, to network with. So that's really all you need, I think. I mean, he gave her the tools to succeed on her own. Now, the Belasco Theater is still there. It's at um, 111 West 44th Street. It just got restored not too long ago, maybe five or six years ago. It is so fancy. It is so fancy. I mean, this it's the kind where the ceiling is all carved and painted different colors and there's gilding everywhere. And ladies wore evening gowns to this theater. No one is going to throw peanuts at you at the Belasco <laughs> Theater. No. And she had the glory of Broadway without much of the gold, although $25 a week, that's $700 a week. But she tried to live on a quarter of that and send the rest to her mother. She's so good. She was. She was so frugal. I mean, she learned it from Charlotte early on and she continued it. Similar to the way that Madonna evidently spent her first two or three years in New York City living on popcorn, Mary Pickford lived on bananas and milk because it was cheap. Every meal, bananas and milk. Gross. But I mean, you know what? I guess if you're going to pick two superfoods, those are the ones to pick. I keep wondering if her illnesses that she had as a young child and her lack of any kind of healthy diet growing up contributed to her stature. Five five foot, maybe. She's teeny tiny. I kept wondering if that stunted her at all. Well, as someone who's five feet tall, I don't think so. 
but oh yeah that's <laughs> um, I always forget that because you wear the high heels it's like no no you're five two just like me <laughs> but I will say that is not at all an odd thing to say because I do remember and this is a British comment that the upper crust in the army were astonished at the ill health and poor physical well-being of the men who signed up for the army during World War One. because if you came from a poor family they couldn't afford to feed you properly and so here all these men are coming in that aren't fit for service at all um, willing, but not really that able. And um, I think that actually helped with um, a lot of poor reform in Britain, seeing mm-hmm. that happen. So I wouldn't be surprised to know that it contributed to a lack of height. But it benefited her in this particular situation because she looked so youthful, even though she was older and you know had more ex- life experience, more skills. She could play kids on the stage. So it made her more versatile. So it benefited her in the long run. Like everything that happened to her early in her life somehow benefits her later on up the ladder. Well, her show, which was called The Warrens of Virginia, ran for a year and a half. Uh, So for Broadway, that's pretty good. Um, All shows, though, eventually come to an end. Someday, so must Hamilton, (laughs) though it is hard to imagine at this point. Um, Someday, though, will be the last day. Well, um, even though she had money in the bank when it came to the close and connections on Broadway, who all promised further work as it came up, Mary and her mother were just absolutely to the bone fearful of slipping back down into poverty. They were terrified of it. I don't blame them one bit. I mean, the play run is over. She had gone on the road with it for a little while, but it's all over. She's looking at her options. It's the beginning of summer. In summertime, there's no air conditioning. The theater traffic kind (laughs) of comes to a standstill. And they're trying to support themselves. Now all four of them are in New York. So I don't blame them for being terrified at all. Well, they decided that Mary's best chance for some temporary immediate work was to head over to the Biograph Film Company and get into some movies, which, of course, Mary hated the thought of this. It was so embarrassing. This was very, very low. She's a Broadway actress, and now she's going to be mixed up with these whatever these people were, maniacs, but maniacs paid $5 a day. And it is not sneezable that $5 a day uh, when you were deathly afraid of not making any income. So, uh, man, Mary did not have a good experience. The first time she ever saw a movie was one that was called Hale's Tour. It kind of sounds cool to me. You'd go in and see on the screen a trip on a train that was shown inside a train car. Yeah, but outside they had all these strong men joggling the train car that the audience was sitting around in for realism. (laughs) And nowadays we willingly subject ourselves to things like that. But Mary came out afterward, and many other people did, and donated her dinner to the bushes. Movies, as far as she was concerned, literally made her sick. (laughs) (laughs) She had been desperate and poor enough to try before to get into the moving picture. So this isn't the first time she's ever gone to a movie studio, but surely she was above that now. Like, oh, my life. This is bad. So she goes into the Biograph Studios carrying her attitude problem with her. This studio was made out of this formerly fancy brownstone, like a rich guy's mansion that they had kind of taken over. And now, as far as she was concerned, it's just full of junk and mess and trash people. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> you can tell this job interview is going to go really well. Yeah. It kind of, it reminds me of how Charlotte used to think about the theater though. I mean, it's the mm. same prejudices in play. So here's a little chance for you. There's a 15 year old boy, lucky they got the right age of person out there smoking. A stagehand saw her in the lobby on his way through and he got in there to the next room to his boss, the big boss, D.W. Griffith, the boss of the whole thing that there was, hey, there's a mighty good looker out there in the lobby. You know, movie fate changed at the casual romantic sentence of a 15-year-old boy. (laughs) (laughs) Whose name is lost to history. (laughs) Mr. Griffith was over fretting over the script he had on his desk. He, you know, any excuse for a break, we've all been there. Well, let's go see this looker then. And he straightened his collar and he smoothed his hair in a mirror and went out to be diverted. No hello, no introduction. He just comes out and goes, hey, what are you, an actress? And she all bristled up. Yes, for 10 years. The last two, I was on Broadway with Mr. Belasco, which really does sound like the exact right attitude you need when you're going to interview for a job that you really, really need. (laughs) Later, he told his secret wife, Linda, that he was very impressed by her, by the way, and her attitude and her looks. And he was so intrigued, but, uh, you know, just like Mr. Barasco, so amused by all this confidence. But what he said out loud, nagging, before nagging was a thing, you're too little and fat for movies. That's what he said (laughs) to her face. And he goes, ah, guess we'll give you a try. How about $5 a day? few days a week. I'm a real actress, she said. Yeah, well, I'll get you a screen test. How about it? This all happened really, really fast. She was whisked into this basement room where she's like, wait a minute. Why am I in a basement room? I, You know what? Even now, somebody whisks me into a basement room. That's, mm, I must find the exit. I don't know why she stayed. <laughs> anyway, she got made up in this extremely exaggerated black and white makeup for the movies. I mean, her lips were black. Her face was white. There were very, very strong eyeliner marks around her eyes because that's what played with black and white movies and the film of the time. She's tossed into this dress that had been around the block and taken out to join a bunch of other actors. They were just kind of sitting around smoking they were in between things and here the big boss comes everyone straightens up a little bit but you know we're all casual around here the big boss looks around and goes okay look you we're gonna do a thing everybody stands up okay sounds good okay everybody shut up we're gonna improvise a scene from this new movie that i have back there on my desk i'm thinking about doing it it's called pippa passes it's based on this uh this poem and he just tells them the story right he goes okay there's a young girl she's walking through the forest there's a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells you'll be the 'er ne'er-do-wells points at some guys uh she's the young girl she walks through the forest singing and her song changes them into good people okay go and Mary's like, well, where, what are my lines? What a, what's the scene? And he goes, lines. This is a silent movie, sister. Say whatever you want. Who cared about lines? This isn't about lines. Go, 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 go. And the giant camera started growling. You know how film, old film, it's like in the middle, there's the squares where the picture is. But on the outside, there's all these little holes, the grommet holes. Mm-hmm. Well, the camera makes those holes as it feeds through. It didn't come like that. And so the machine is throwing like a machine gun, all this... And it was about that loud, throwing crap out of both sides. You couldn't hear a dang thing. Everyone is staring at her from behind the camera. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) She's like looking around and everybody's pretending to be 'er ne'er-do-wells. All these lights were blinding and everything was just hot, so hot. She could feel her face sweating under all this makeup. Her hair was wilting. Play the guitar. Sing. 
do something. And one of the actors is like, who is this freaking dame? She stopped to bristle at him. How dare you call me a dame? I'm a respectable woman. And, you know, much sneering from the onstage peanut gallery. Meanwhile, the director starts screaming, don't stop. Do not stop. Miss whatever your name is. This film is expensive and you're costing me money. This was such a comfortable audition don't you think <laughs> oh yeah it was a great place to be i can't even imagine the confusion she had going around in her head well she blundered through somehow it was so humiliating like it was meant to be i, I have to tell you i think he was trying to teach her a little lesson about humility <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe well they did put her in as an extra on a movie they were already filming you know we need another lady it was hard to get women and i was reading a diary that was written by dw griffith's wife, Linda. And she said um, in the early days, women were just so hard to find for the moving pictures because of the respectability thing. They Mm -hmm. were so afraid that once they got there, they would be like, you know, oh, those are prostitutes. And then their reputations would be ruined. So it was very, very hard to get. And so he had an extra girl in the house. Let's get her on (laughs) while she's here. Her part was eventually cut out. I'm sure she was as wooden as could be. And that's a failed screen test, don't you think? I would think so. I would think it a failed screen test, but it was successful. So was it a failure? Well, I don't know, because it was eight hours later. She thought this was going to be a 15-minute interview, and this is literally eight hours later. She is all wrung out. She washed her face and came out to the main lobby, and you know that 12 rods song from Orange County, like, today has sucked. We should link you to that. Because that was her day. Uh, She has not had a good plan. And there's Mr. Griffith, smiling, happy, completely satisfied with the outcome of his day. The diversion was successful. Uh, Come to dinner with me, he says. What What is happening? What is happening? No, I'm not the kind of girl that goes to dinner with men. And he goes, are you coming back tomorrow? And there's a giant silence. How can he want me back tomorrow? Seriously, I have never done anything worse in my whole entire life. And he's like, come on, Pickford, five bucks. And she stared him down and she goes, 10. What a delightful, completely out of place attitude because she had sucked. And here she was telling him she wanted double his pitiful offer for her sucky work. (laughs) (laughs) And she wanted a $25 a week minimum. (laughs) He loved it. He loved everything about it. He loved her looks. He loved her attitude. He loved the fact that he could get a rise out of her. Uh, It was just a great package for everyone. Well, frankly, she went home and pulled the covers up over her head. (laughs) (laughs) This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what that career in the movies was like. are back and it is time to go to work in the movie industry. Here's another dropped in history that we didn't get at the beginning. Something else that was born in 1892 besides Gladys Louise Smith, Edison invented the moving picture camera. How's that for foreshadowing? It wasn't actually introduced until the, I can't believe this Beckett, 1893 World's Fair. (laughs) 
Mary was not about to let those clowns get her down. I think she was fueled by anger, actually, for the first half of this deal. Well, her first role that actually made it to screen, there's an irony here, was one where she had to be sick on camera. An echo of her very first experience even seeing movies. She, in this plot... A new bride, not her, got married, um, and her food, her cooking was so bad, and everyone who tasted it was not feeling great and was staggering around the screen, vomiting everywhere. Surely we could get Sofia Coppola to reprise this stunning masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one day, D.W. Griffith, the director, caught her in the hall. Hey, kid, you want to play the lead in the next one? Sure, I guess. What do you know about making love, he says. Now, this is not... Sex. This is, you know, courtship and kissing and batting your eyes, movie making love. Uh, uh, you know what? I just want to add, as far as the director knew, she was 15, by the way. Okay, let's do it a little audition here in the hallway. Make love to that pillar, that column. It was like a piece of scenery. And she's still like, um, uh, uh, I'm super embarrassed. Oh, no, not a pillar. And then A random actor walks by. Okay, hey, Moore. His name was Owen Moore. You need a real guy, kid? Okay, Moore, we need you. Pickford here knows everything there is to know about acting and making love. So we need you as a prop. How? uh. (laughs) After more humiliation, by the way. And um, a good, honest try at making love on camera, Griffith said, why don't you give it 10 more years of life and a whole lot of rehearsal and walked away. He has something else, something I don't like. I'll tell you that. Well, and later uh, people would say that that particular moment, they could see that there was some kind of chemistry between Moore and Pickford. And she even said it. She felt as soon as he touched her, she felt, I'm paraphrasing, you know, tingles from it. So maybe the awkwardness was more a secret crush situation than an acting malfunction. Stay tuned. Uh, So D.W. Griffith, while being a giant jerk face, is also a pioneering genius. And his troupe, while being dreadfully abused, as far as I'm concerned, got to be so loyal to him and hardly ever wanted to go back to real life that everybody hung around the building, just like theater students do. I tell you the number of hours I spent in the green room of Murphy Hall at KU (laughs) with Paul Rudd, at least for part of a year. Um, Out of control. Out of control. Well, it's kind of like podcasting. You know, we got in kind of early and it was kind of still inventing the wheel time. Mm. So it was exciting. And, you know, we put in a lot of work for nothing but, yeah, this is exciting to be part of. So I can totally understand. And that's what the movie industry was at this point. They were inventing the wheel and they were part of it. That had to be thrilling in itself. Well, the shooting schedule was ferocious. They were always working, working, working. Mary did 45 movies in 1909 and 35 the next year. These are shorts. These aren't full length features. Nevertheless, I mean, that's crazy. I don't think we do 45 episodes a year. No, we, we don't. But there's a lot of shows that do. Weekly shows would. I guess so. At this point, they're called flickers. They're just shown in Nickelodeons. And at the beginning of Mary's career, there's only like 5,000 of them in the whole country. So they're supplying that. But their whole industry is starting to explode as an entertainment for everybody. You know, Mary's not the only actress in the stable. So I can't imagine how many movies that studio was actually 
cranking out. Well, there's a lot going on. And I love reading about the schedule in that sometimes the whole lot of them would head out of town for location shooting, for which most of the time they had no permission even. Um, You know, sometimes they got chased off property with dogs and anger. (laughs) (laughs) And other times the townspeople would be so intrigued. Like, what's a podcast? I mean... (laughs) what's this a movie on my back pasture and everybody would hang around like just wanting to be near the action they you know this is just a new world which had to be exciting though mary would always say out loud that she just couldn't wait to get back to quote real acting which probably got super old by the way (laughs) if you know if you're with a co-worker that's always like my old job was way better they're like go back to your old job then (laughs) Well, she asked for a raise one day because, and I quote, two people recognized me on the subway. You're going to have to pay me more to put up with that kind of embarrassment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of that, Mary was one of the very first to pick up on the fact that the whole melodrama stage, you know, no, Papa, I don't want to marry him, was not going to play well on film. The camera could see your thoughts in a way that people, even in the first row of a stage play, are never going to be able to see. It required a whole new technique. It was a whole new playbook to have to write. So everyone had to learn this new world, and Mary learned it earlier than most. I think she probably practiced more than most because a lot of the people that are making these movies, a lot of the actors and actresses, this is their first gig in front of any kind of audience Mm. where she had all this theater experience. So she's used to learning how to get a character by mannerisms. So it's the same thing, just different mannerisms. Not only acting and practicing, she made a special point of talking to the lighting men, the cameramen, the wardrobe lady. So how do you do your thing? Show me how this works. Why do you do it like that? What if you did it like this? In the process, she made friends and frankly influenced people because people love to teach things. They like to be thought important. And I don't think it was calculated in any way. I think she was genuinely trying to understand all aspects of her new industry and the especially the cameraman and the lighting men. You know, they would take special care to show her in a flattering light or to tell her when something wasn't flattering so she could change it because they could talk to her because there's, you know, nobody's hearing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Hey, there's a shadow kid move, you know, or whatever. (laughs) Um, That is a very subtle networking skill that I really admire. It was something that she just did innately. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of these people that has all the qualities to do what they are going to do. You know, it's just like this perfect storm of a person. So Mr. Griffith and Mary had what I might call a stormy relationship. She was not falling for his line of charm. For one, man, did he have a reputation. He had this open string of girlfriend-like people and just assumed she'd join the ranks. And her position was, you know what, I will accept whatever directorial abuse you throw at me. Though she did walk out a lot. All that, that's for the art. All those arguments, I don't care. But I am not getting involved with you as any kind of a man. And I think that was probably hard at the time to do. He was the man that could make or break your career in the movies. And she wasn't going to, she was me too before me too, you know. (laughs) That's right. Standing up for herself. I mean, the reputation of the movies for being a dangerous place for young women, i.e. why respectable young women weren't joining in droves, was not misplaced. Uh -uh. 
So, hmm. well, another reason, though, is because she had fallen in love with old Owen Moore. That love scene walked by um, hmm, really made an impression. And she really fell for his smooth, good looks after they filmed that scene for real. Owen was six years older than Mary. He was born in Ireland, but came to the United States with his family as a very small boy. He grew up in Toledo. And a year before Mary got to Biograph, he and a brother had come to New York looking for acting work. And Biograph was his first job. So he is a little bit more established than she is. But Mary had to leave Owen behind when Griffith decided to spend the winter filming in the reliably good weather of California. But the thing is, he was only going to take a limited number of staff. Man, D.W. Griffith's wife's memoirs really talk about money a lot. Like there were certain people in the cast that got to ride in the good car (laughs) and get the good steaks and everything else. And everyone else got sandwiches and got to ride in the bench seats. You know, it was just like air travel where, you know, mom and dad sit in first class and all the kids are back in coach. It was exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, another thing she said is he if he gives them 30 cents a day for food, they blow all 30 cents of it. They don't save any of it. Nobody tries to save him any money. They will get as much as they possibly can. I'm like, that's human nature. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Although I don't think Mary did that as much as other people. I think she was extraordinarily frugal. She lived cheap where everybody else was living, you know, paycheck to paycheck. She's living cheap. Charlotte could not stand Owen Moore, not one bit. And she saw this as a great way to get Mary out of town and away from Owen, because if Owen was going, Mary wasn't. She made that perfectly clear to D.W. Griffith. And he said, "Okay." Owen even tried to weasel his way onto the train. He showed up the day that they were leaving and he thought, well, Mary's going to cry and they'll give in and I'll go. Nope. He was left behind. And honestly, Owen Moore never forgave Griffith for that and never forgave Mary's mother for that either. And he never worked for D.W. Griffith again. It was a it was a big break. Yeah. Unbreak in his career, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And what a revelation California was when they got there. The weather, the flowers just like shot out of the earth randomly. All of these competing film companies had descended on this area. It was just this garden-like wonderland near Los Angeles called Hollywood. Um, Though every night they had to go back to Los Angeles to find somewhere to stay on a dirt road called Sunset Boulevard because there was nowhere to stay in Hollywood. (laughs) I love that. It's like the Wild West. Yes. The movie production went apace. And in addition to this, Mary began to write and sell screenplays at $15 a pop. Another skill in her arsenal. You know, we think of a screenplay as an entire script. But remember, there's no sound. There's no dialogue. So it's just guidance. It's like a map. Mm-hmm. For the actors to do, it's like this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And it leaves a lot of room for improvisation on the actor's part to, you know, fill in the gaps of the script. But she was writing them. That part blew my mind. Remember, this is a girl who didn't go to school. She learned to read essentially on her own. You know, she had some guidance from people around her, but essentially she learned to read on her own, and she read a lot. So uh, that maybe because I'm a writer, that impressed me so much that she took that initiative to get more income. We've already talked about how frugal she was. Every penny was pinched throughout this winter work season, and she had supplemented her income quite spectacularly. And therefore, 
Mary came back from her sojourn in California with $1,200, which is $30,000 in today's money. This was so much money that her mother had to be convinced it wasn't prop money, you know, like monopoly money. (laughs) She, man, like nobody could believe it. Now, unfortunately... The strategy did not work with regard to separation from Owen Moore because the second Mary got back, she took up with Owen Moore again. Um, He was all looks and charm, although, and I'm not 100% sure how secretive this was, he was a raging alcoholic, just like Mary's papa had been. I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, I think that might have been one of the qualities that Charlotte spotted in him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and she knew, you know, that Mary was going down a really rocky road. Mary was starting to be famous throughout the nation, though nobody knew her name. It wasn't the policy of Biograph to give credit. So she began to be known as the girl with the curls or just simply the Biograph girl. That's insulting if you're another woman on the staff, by the way. <laughs> Like, I also am here, but okay. They're getting letters and comments about one particular actress. You know, she's going to be it. Yeah. And so the head of a rival studio came and poached her. How about this? We'll double your salary. So now she's making modern $4,000 a week. We will let people know your name. That is an invaluable benefit. We'll employ your whole family. Also, we have Owen Moore working for us. Let's just get the carrot and hold it by the green part and dangle it in front of her. (laughs) We will cast this guy as your on-screen romance. How about it? Sold. (laughs) (laughs) Where do I sign? Well, she signed with a company called the Independent Motion Picture Company. And then, in secret, she married Owen Moore. Though she continued to live at home because it's a secret. She later stated that she regretted the marriage while she was standing in front of the magistrate, the government official that was marrying them. She, while standing there, not listening to him talk, fantasized about running away. She tried to decide if Owen would try to catch her if she ran in her heels. And then she kind of heard her mouth saying, I do, before she really got a hold of her mouth, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And it was done. Mm -hmm. She immediately put her wedding band on a chain around her neck so that nobody would know that she was married, including especially her mother. I mean, she's sleeping in the same bed as Lottie at this point. I'm sorry to say Independent Motion Pictures was horrible, horrible as far as Mary's concerned. It was like going back to the vaudeville circuit after being on Broadway. Another big mistake, like her marriage, the film's were bad. The major studios would send thugs to break up filming because unlike Biograph, these guys were operating outside of the movie trust. So there were safety concerns that you didn't have to think about while you were working for Biograph and safety concerns with filming. Like there were many stunts that were just like, hope you don't drown. (laughs) Um, And Owen was becoming violent There was a rumor that he, quote, took the whip to Mary and at least verbally abusive, which we can document, even in public, even in public. After 34 films with these people, Mary finally had to take to court to break up her contract with IMP and also sort of informally break up her marriage to Owen Moore, though they uh, separated about this time, though right before they separated, they starred in five films together for another studio called Majestic. Maybe most 
popular or at least most famous was her turn as Little Red Riding Hood, which made it onto the cover of the very first issue of Photoplay magazine. <laughs> well, true to their word, um, the studios had made her a household name. The public now called her Little Mary, and she became a star. Probably the very first truly nationally accessible actress, really. Um, people had been famous before. You'd heard of Sarah Bernhardt, etc., but some stars you had to have an opera dress to see. You didn't need an opera dress to pay five cents at the local theater. So she was known by face by more people than really anyone had ever been known before. All of a sudden, all these Nickelodeons, all these places to show these movies are popping up all over the United States. So it was easier for her to be in front of people than it was a few years before. That is true. Well, she landed back on Broadway after the Majestic in a major production. Isn't that what you wanted all along? That's what's been coming out of your face for years. Actually, she was there on Broadway missing the frantic world more than she realized. She was actually pining for her old exciting life again. She was a movie person now, like it or not. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of freaked her out. She was experiencing fame in a way that really people had never experienced fame before. And I quote her. People consider me their personal friend. They follow my every step. They get to the point where they not only want me to be, but expect me to be in real life exactly what I am in my pictures. And of course, since this is the trial run of such fame, she often tried to accommodate them. And she had a strong feeling about staying in character off stage. Like, I must project innocence while I'm just walking around. You know, she took care not to dance in public, not to drink alcohol in public. Um, no smoking cigarettes, just generally being what people expected her to be. And do you remember how the cast of The Real World, the very first one who were just regular people, not actors, were sort of everyone was kind of taken aback by their sudden fame? Mm -hmm. This to me seems like more of the same. The first time that movie star, the way we know him today, was ever a thing, it seemed and was dangerous and strange as well as being flattering mm -hmm. she was now known as america's sweetheart the play thing i'm really glad that she did it because it's like that boyfriend you know that you have in the back of your head that you broke up with and you think you shouldn't have you mm -hmm. need to see him somewhere down the line or else you're just going to fantasize and make it better than it was so i think that's what being in that one belasco play at the end did for her so good. Now she's like wholeheartedly into the movies. She did go back to Biograph after the play. Um, her confidence and her knowledge of the business was far greater than she or DW had realized. And their working relationship, it was bad before. It got even more volatile at this point. Did she actually bite him? Maybe. Is he really physically pushing her down? Maybe. Are they arguing? You, I mean, the same thing they were doing before, except more. Yeah, I I think it was just two alphas in a room and you know that never works. Mm -mm. So she escaped out of there and signed with a different company called Famous Players. Now the different thing about Famous Players is and really the industry as a whole Everyone was starting to make feature-length movies now. Five reels, eight reels, narrative stories. It was a whole new concept. Another thing that famous players had was someone in the industry who was kind of leading 
these feature-length films. His name was Adolf Zucker. He was a Hungarian immigrant. Um, he was brilliant in making like the lighting and things that happen in the movie, not just the actors acting, but like physical objects, cutting the edge of filmmaking at this time. So she and Adolf Zucker got together at uh, Famous Players. And her first film was actually the play that she had done for Belasco, the last play she did. And it didn't actually work out so well for her. But they kept her because there was something in her Zucker saw and wanted to keep working with her. She started to take on really what she is most remembered for, although I want to stress that this is by no means her entire body of work. But when you think of Mary Pickford, you think of a little girl role with long curls, short dress, and Mary Janes. Now, those did exist, and they were among her most popular movies, but that wasn't all she did. But I do like how Zucor and friends committed to making her look smaller by changing the scale of the furniture, the doors, the whole environment. Similarly, the way Hagrid is made so large in Harry Potter. It's not all CGI. It is just brilliant prop work. I just thought that was great. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I meant by in the movie, in the picture, physical things that he was able to create exactly like that. Giving, thank you for giving an example. <laughs> <laughs> so although she was first making a thousand a week, now this is in, you know, her money, and then two thousand a week, she frugal to the last, lived very simply with her mother. She always kept her mother around. They that was her other half. Her mother was her best financial advisor, her career advisor, her acting coach, and occasionally <laughs> since Mama and Owen loathed each other, um, um, really a thorn in her side. <laughs> you know what else she did, though? Her mother appeared with her in public. Owen did not. She didn't wear her wedding ring and she had her mother next to her. So that's another way that she was trying to perpetuate this innocent uh, persona that she had on the screen. So the tension between her mother and her husband really made life very stressful. Owen and Mary kept trying to reconcile and not really getting it together. Although he played Prince, was not not shy to tell any person who would listen to him, which after a while they stopped. I'm just a shadow thrown by a big scintillating light, which reminds me so much of Prince Philip in The Crown. He was very insistent that second place was not a man's place and that his wife needed to get up early and make him his scrambled eggs like every wife in America. Mm -hmm. But just like Prince Philip, he knew kind of what he was getting into. I mean, obviously it was all theory, but he knew that he was marrying someone that was a brighter star than he would ever be. I don't know. See, I don't, I think that they caught each other as equals and then her growth in the industry made him jealous and angry. That's what I think his problem was that his career did not grow like hers did. And so here mm -hmm. she is outshining him and it was a little bit of sour grapeitude, I think. Okay, I'll there buy that. There will be others to whom that would apply, but I think in this case, he didn't know, and it happened kind of by surprise. Mary, looking around, learning, and listening to everybody, slowly started to realize that, hey, just like in the live theater, the studios are the ones 
raking in the money. They dole out a pittance to the players. I mean, she made more than almost everyone, but really it was a pittance compared with how much money these movies were bringing in. And she slowly began to examine these details and then to... And although every studio on earth was trying to crank out Mary Pickford ingenue actresses as fast as they could get them in hair and makeup, everybody knew there was no substitute for the real deal and they knew that Mary's contract was coming up. That is worldwide news. (laughs) (laughs) And the studio working with Charlie Chaplin, really at this point, the other heavy hitter in the industry, offered her one million dollars cold hard cash to come to their facility okay how far have we come from our eight dollar a week job playing mean girl on stage to please please accept this one million (laughs) dollars i mean she was totally a trailblazer she was the first actor or actress to have their name up on the marquee. How dazzling is that? It's also the first to have her name above the movie title. Placement is still a big issue. Like who's on the left is very important. And the subject of meetings where people pound their fists on the table all over Hollywood even today. So she got her name above the title of the movie? That's something else. That means something. So, okay, a million dollars is on the table. But Mary, it's so amazing to me that she was this smart. Mary wanted something better. She wanted control. So what she did say to her current studio is, observe this million dollars that I could have in my left hand. Now I'm going to play hardball with you. I want half a million a year or half the profits of all Mary Pickford movies, whichever is more money. But I want control over which roles I'm going to take. I want control over all director selection. I want the final say on all other casting. I want to say in the final edit of any film I'm in, I would like to become a producer. I want my own division within this company called the Pickford Film Corporation and staff and bonuses. And you know what? Build me a private studio. That's what I want. And they are like, okay. <laughs> they were Sorry. like, we have absolutely no choice because we know how much money you are bringing in. And <laughs> we have no choice. You've got us. You've got us by exactly the thing that you could grab. <laughs> Oh, was that that delicate? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I'm sorry to say, though not surprised, that the menfolk didn't really think all this hard-headed business negotiating was very feminine. Charlie Chaplin, you know, that other main A-lister at the time, number one, he was super irritated because he'd been bragging around town that he just made $350,000. And here this check comes in. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to turn down a million how about that? And still make more money than you. So, uh, yeah, he he made sort of a thing of this and started calling her the Bank of America's sweetheart, which is jealous and not very cool, Chuck. Someday during one of our Rooster episodes, I would like to cover Charlie Chaplin because the only thing I really know about him is this relationship. <laughs> and, um, you know, he met Helen Keller. That's really all I know. His interactions with the life of Mary Pickford, which he does not come out smelling awesome. To be fair, in her turn, Mary Pickford threw Charlie Chaplin under the bus politically and questioned his patriotism during a widespread blackballing 
kind of a dangerous time to be messing around with that. So I can't believe the blame is all one-sided. They were uneasy companions from the beginning. Ideally, they wouldn't have to have too much to do with each other. So I would like to understand his motivations more. So someday when we ever recover a rooster, I think Charlie Chaplin has risen to the top of my list. Oh, Charlie Chaplin has been at the top of my list. Like Henry VIII used to be, but we've talked about him so much that he's dropped. And so Charlie Chaplin, I saw that movie with uh, Robert Downey Jr. where he played Charlie Chaplin. Oh, yeah. I thought it was amazing. So that's that's all that I know about him. So, yes, I agree. I would like to know more. So Mary's response to pretty much all this negative press with regard to unfeminine behavior, she said, it may sound rather harsh, my dealings with Mr. Zucor and maybe other business associates, but it must be borne in mind that an actor's life is short lived. Any one of things can happen to him. Loss of health being the greatest one. But what about the loss of popularity? And so he must make hay while the sun shines. I had to assume the business role in order to protect the thing I loved, which was my work. I do not think she had to explain herself, but evidently she did. She had to explain why she was being ferocious about her contract by explaining that it's not going to last forever. And so she had to really be aggressive when she had the power. Well, that's the responsibility of the first person. You know, if, if these days it's, you shouldn't have to explain that. But back then she was the first. She was a trailblazer. People didn't understand why. So she had that was her job. It was her responsibility as a first. It's part of why she made so much money. You're an awful lot like Mary Pickford. I kept thinking that over and over again because she just looks so sweet. And, you know, she's got, she had this hard brain working in her favor. So people underestimated her based on her appearance. And I believe that a lot of people do that to you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that is a kind of power you don't even understand. Once you get a hold of how to use it, it is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So hold your horses. (laughs) Well, it was at a house party when Mary was 23. She's only 23. (laughs) That she had a fateful meeting with a rising star named Douglas Fairbanks. He was married. She was married. But it was sort of Thunderbolt City. And soon he was climbing out second story windows like a boy in a teen movie to sneak out and meet her. His greatest advantage was also his greatest disadvantage. As far as I'm concerned, Douglas hadn't known her as anything but the queen of the movies, you know, so already he had to be okay with that. This is also kind of making me, hmm, we have not examined his motivations, but it looks like from the outside that he had married his rich debutante first wife, maybe for self-serving reasons too. Mary's own brother Jack of Fairbanks said he's always acting a part. He's always on. Who's even the real guy? If anybody would know that, it would be Jack. We really haven't talked too much about her siblings because she's bringing them along. She's got them roles when she was in the theater. Then she got them roles in the movies. They were always given everything and they were very entitled people. And Jack himself was quite a little player. So for him to spot it, I I would be upset if he didn't spot it. Right. Well, let's see. Fairbanks had... A very similar path is so similar, it's kind of freaky, um, to Mary. His father had abandoned the family when Douglas was five. 
He also had started acting really at six, I think, (laughs) unlike Mary. So he was really young. Uh, He started touring at 15 and had made it to Broadway at 19. Although there was a bit of a longer lag here because he didn't make it to Hollywood until he was 32. Otherwise, that is Parallel Lives right there. His path really mirrored hers in a curious way. And I'm kind of wondering if that's just the early way to Hollywood. And it seems like maybe it is. And I don't think that happens so much anymore. I think you can go right to Hollywood without ever having trod the boards, as they say. You could even get to Hollywood by being in a reality show. (laughs) Oh, well, that's Tying it back to the real world. So both Fairbanks and Mary moved out to Hollywood separately with their families. He had another very bad quality as far as Mary was concerned. His broham, best friend, Charlie Chaplin. Oh, that guy again. (laughs) Mary's already grumpy about him for calling her Bank of America's sweetheart. And he would do impressions of her at parties like Blair. And he did impressions of everyone. You know, you're not that special, but, you know, still irritating. But, you know, love me. Pretend to love my friend. (laughs) (laughs) And soon Hollywood all knew about Mary and Fairbanks and, quote, knew about the inseparable kooky friend trio, which was pretty fraudulent on two of their parts. But Owen was spotted wandering the streets of Hollywood with a gun looking for Douglas Fairbanks. (laughs) That's not good. No, no. We... Kind of forget about Owen, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone forgot about Owen. I think that's part of his problem. Um, He was just the shadow man as far as he was concerned. He was so mad one day. Somebody called him um, Mr. Pickford and he lost his crap. He could not handle it. She is Mrs. Moore. Like, not really. (laughs) Well, America went to war. In 1917, uh, World War One had started before that, but that's when America came in. And Mary went to work not just making patriotic short movies, which is definitely within her wheelhouse, but selling war bonds, millions and millions of dollars worth just by making speeches. Uh, she auctioned off one of her famous curls for tens of thousands of dollars. They're iconic pieces of history, those sausage curls. Some of them were not real. I will tell you she had um, pieces made. And of course, the public was told that they were made from prostitute hair. Why is that even a thing? Like the contrast between America's sweetheart and prostitute hair. Like why would we even put that out there? I don't <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to go with the contrast part. It has to be. I guess. I guess. Well, um, so one of them may have made it to the top, but I think that it was actually one of her own curls. They cut off her head for tens of thousands of dollars, you'd hope. And um, she met and entertained soldiers. Her fundraising and her morale boosting, and I have to say pro-war propaganda, she was a pretty conservative person politically, although, of course, women couldn't vote yet, so it didn't matter, <laughs> really. But I mean, her influence was great. Her influence was great. Um, she was so valuable to the United States war effort that two cannons were named after her and she was made an honorary colonel. There was a piece printed in the paper about how Mary Pickford was the greatest American of the wartime era. If all the world were gathered in one huge auditorium and a portrait were to be flashed upon the screen, which would be the most recognized by the greatest number? Whose would it be? Woodrow Wilson? Lloyd George? The Kaiser? The King of England? No, indeed, it would be Mary Pickford. For world popularity, she is the greatest American. She is the greatest world 
citizen. Rightly used, the moving picture might be made the greatest factor in securing world peace through its destruction of ignorance and its removal of prejudice of race against race. And again, she couldn't even vote. She was obviously smart. She obviously had power. But while she was doing all that, suffragists were still marching. That kept going through my mind at this particular time period. It's like, oh, my gosh, what was wrong with our country? So Mrs. Douglas Fairbanks, who we have also forgotten existed, filed for divorce. The rumors had reached her for a long time, but finally she had had enough. And so Douglas Fairbanks got a divorce. But Mary really, really, really hesitated to go through with her own divorce because her image relied on wholesomeness, I guess is the only word I could think of. Divorce was still a very shocking thing. And she was worried that it would tarnish the public's opinion of her. Not only that, but Owen himself could make trouble for her. I mean, not only was he a slime ball and she would be, you know, yoked to him in the public eye, but he could be spreading all kinds of things about her image and tarnishing it, even things that were true. For instance, when they were married, she got pregnant and she had an abortion. It also made her unable to have children ever. He could tell the world that that itself would be far more detrimental to her career than divorce would. So she was in danger of ruining her reputation and her image. And of course, Douglas Fairbanks had seemed to escape criticism entirely with his divorce. But of course, he was a man. Hmm. Well, there were rumblings of unrest in the movie industry as a whole. Evidently, some of the studio heads were meeting up to try to deal with, quote, the excessive pride and cost of actors. This power that was now tilting unexpectedly toward the performers was making the money men very angry. And they were thinking of making some sort of trust to collude to keep actors' salaries low and their fame low and deal with what they kind of saw as their unreasonable power to kind of rein them in. Uh, Mary, during her shoots, used to keep a donation bucket on set where she would kind of notice who donated. She started an informal and then later a formal fund to help actors especially and also cameramen, um, unemployed members of the movie family. She thought that the successful members of this family should help support those who just couldn't find new work or who had been injured or this and that. And, you know, it started from a bucket. It soon became an official fund where people had to donate part of their salary. All of the official part comes later, but I just wanted to specify that this early even, she was thinking about the welfare of those less fortunate than she. Mm -hmm. Well, and she had been befriending them since day one on the set. These were her people. This was her industry. This was her entire world. I mean, she didn't go into it willingly, but once she was there, it she was that was it. That was it for her. She's going to protect everything in it. Um, as much as possible. It's one of her trailblazing things that she did. I loved it. So Mary, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and our old friend, director D.W. Griffith, got together to form a new corporation called United Artists. And this was a place for all the independents to work and escape the thumb of the man. It was a very good evasion. These were the highest paid actors and director in Hollywood, and they had just made a stand. And, incidentally, were destined, if they played their cards right, to make a lot of money working for themselves. No more the 50-50 split. Anything they made in profit, well, they could keep. 
It was time to be brave in other ways. Mary went to Nevada for a quick divorce, ideally a quiet divorce. I must say there was a little subterfuge because technically you had to be a resident of Nevada to get a divorce there, but the judge was a fan who wasn't. Owen Moore put up a fight and he contested this divorce, but the forces of fame were against him and Mary was free. Not long afterward, Mary and Douglas Fairbanks got married in a low-key way at Douglas's new house. And they didn't even tell their partner, Charlie Chaplin, or Mary's sister, Lottie. And then they sat there and started biting their fingernails off, waiting for the verdict. The court of public opinion had to weigh in. Was it done? Were their careers over? Ab- Absolutely, their careers were not ruined. Everyone everywhere could not think of a better possible combination than America's sweetheart and the king of cinema. And for those of you who have forgotten, slash maybe never knew, who Douglas Fairbanks even was, I mean, his most famous movie is The Mask of Zorro, if that gives you an idea of what he even looks like. Fairbanks's image was... The clean-cut but very manly optimist. He lived for adventure. (laughs) He did his own stunts. The stunts are what he was the most famous for. He was very athletic. And I think older, less flexible men didn't like him very much for that reason. (laughs) They're sort of jealous (laughs) of his abilities. (laughs) There's a bunch of YouTube videos out there of him and Charlie Chaplin together. And they're just so physical. It's kind of fun. to. They're just bouncing around like little boys on a trampoline and they're on the ground. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. Well, there you go. He was every boy's dream life. The way that Mary was the ideal for womanliness and what could be more natural. There was no adverse effect on their careers at all. What a pleasant surprise that was. So Mary and Doug, the queen and king, ruled their kingdom of Hollywood in undisputed fashion up from their house in Beverly Hills that they called Pickfair. And it was Mrs. Astor's 400 all over again. Were you in or were you out? And Pickfair was very often called the West Coast White House due to its societal influence. Well, all right. We'll leave them ruling from their castle on the hill, or at least in the hills. And when we (laughs) come back, we will take you through the rest of Mary's career. We are at Pick Fair, which was a strangely conservative place, right? (laughs) To me, it seemed very conservative. They were very careful about their public image in a way that pretty much nobody had had to be before. They never danced with anyone else than each other. They always took pains to sit together. Mary sat at the head and Douglas sat to one side of her, even at other people's houses. That's 
defiance of the etiquette, really, um, for the husband and wife to sit together. But they made a point of that was like key to their appearance at a party. Um, you know, bedtimes were early at Pick Fair. Refreshments were wholesome. I read of a chocolate milk and sandwiches dinner. <laughs> they were notoriously very friendly, but formal, kind of. And I imagine that Mary was starting to feel very lonely. And I'm sure it was lonely at the top. Everyone's happy to meet you. Are they, though? Because how are you going to know who your real friends are? About this time, in fact, there seemed to be a descent into secret drinking. And I only say secret drinking because she would go down to her mother's house on the grounds. Her mother kept a bunch of alcohol in the basement, hiding it from her son. And Mary used to go down there and have a session with her mother. Or she had bottles in her bathroom that were marked Listerine and witch hazel or whatever, and they were actually gin and, you know, other drinks. So, I mean, secret drinking, hidden drinking. I see no trouble there. Ha ha. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So somebody likened her to, and this actually is so apt, it kind of gives me a thrill. They likened her to the young Queen Victoria. I'm going to live up to what's expected of me. I am going to live a public life and I will be here as long as my people need me. It wasn't a matter of joy anymore. It was a matter of for the first time. Think about this, like having to live up to the expectations of people that you don't know, millions of them. I can't imagine. And, you know, you had mentioned something about friends through everything that I read. There was only one friend figure that I saw that was Frances Marion, who was a screenwriter in Hollywood. They met early on in her California days. That was like the only friend I ever read about. It's sad. She's fascinating, Frances Marion. But um, yeah, we should cover her, maybe minicast. So Douglas Fairbanks had a son that he never saw from his first marriage. He lived with his mother. And also Mary's sister, Lottie, gave up her daughter, Gwyn, who alternated between living with her grandmother, Charlotte, and Pickfair, and also to boarding school when she got a little older. But so functionally, Mary did have a child. So we shouldn't forget that that person exists, although she never rose to the level of, you know, indulgent mother, always present, that Charlotte had. And in fact, Charlotte was the day-to-day on the upbringing of the little girl. But she was around. Now, At the age of 29, (laughs) this is a side note, but like everyone is still real young. Clara Bow and the likes of her arrived on the scene and there was a new sort of girl in town. Not innocent, shall we say. Episode 27 of the History Chicks, one of the only two episodes we have had to mark explicit for content. Things we can't bleep because they are concepts instead of words. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. A new day was coming in America. Um, Sex sells. And I think we are just now starting to realize that. And Mary's brand of wholesome some innocence might be waning. She did cut down on the amount of projects that she was doing. I mean, she'd been cranking out movies for so long. She slowed down to just one acting project a year, 
which is reasonable. And they all did fairly well. I mean, she's still writing her popularity for several years in the 20s. But the world is changing, like you just said. Uh, Let's see. Some more milestones. The Chinese Theater, which we now know as Groman's Chinese Theater, opened when Mary was 34. And she and Douglas Fairbanks were the first ones to put their handprints and signatures in the cement. They were also part owners. So there you go. So at 35, Mary helped to found the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, as in, I'd like to thank the Academy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was sort of the head office of the movie industry, the best practices headquarters, and Douglas Fairbanks was its first president. Now, there's only 36 original members of the Academy, and only three of them were women, Mary and then two screenwriters. As part of um, the Academy, the idea was to get cross-communication between jobs. You know, the lighting people can talk to the acting people, and they can all decide how things are working. One of the things that she and Douglas did was lecture on filmmaking at the University of Southern California. They created the first college-level course on the history of filmmaking. See? They were thinking of the industry as their creation, as something they are going to shape for the future. I just love that. Mm -hmm. So she made her last silent movie a classic romantic comedy called My Best Girl with a young newcomer from Olathe, Kansas, which is just south of here, named Buddy Rogers. And we'll recognize this plot, won't we? He is a rich guy working incognito in the stockroom, and she works at the five and ten counter at the store, and they fall in love. There's a culture clash when they meet each other's families. It's widely considered one of the best movies she ever made, and I concur. And you can catch large sections of it in clips on uh, Vimeo, which I have been watching. And there is a scene where they're having a picnic in a packing crate that is just adorable. And so I... I'm sad about the fact that silent movies are often seen as farces. And I think this is one of the best ones to show yourself and then others that know there's some serious acting in here. Mm. Um, we just can't hear it. <laughs> is all. Well, yeah. And the, there's a score and there's, you know, there's words to read. And I, it took it did take me a while back in Clara Bow to get used to watching the silent movies. But you can just see Mary's brilliance in these movies. Just watch the way she moves her body. And she practiced so hard for each of them from, you know, early on. So she was a brilliant actress. And I think she earned every penny that she made. This was, unfortunately, the same year that Charlotte, Mama, her best friend, her real other half, as far as I'm concerned, and her support began to experience failing health. Um, breast cancer, evidently. And did you read that it was caused by her boob getting caught in the lid of a trunk? I just don't think that's what no. causes breast cancer. Um, I had actually read that she was down in the liquor um, cellar <laughs> and she dropped a bottle on her breast and it hurt. So she had it looked at and then it was discovered. But she refused treatment. She wasn't going to have the surgery. She's, mm. I know. What a painful experience. Well, Mary stayed with her for months, though Mama was sinking so fast. One of the last things her mother ever said to her was, you must never think that you ever displeased or upset me. You are the best daughter that any mother has ever had. So I'm glad that she got that 
message. I She also said that you are often too hard on yourself and you should give yourself some grace. That's also very good advice. When Mama died, Fairbanks had to save Mary from throwing herself out the window. It was very bad. It was very bad. For just a little while, Mary mourned for what she called, quote, her very life. If you think about it, the only person who ever loved her unconditionally has just gone. But only three months later, in, ironically, classic movie fashion, Mary had all her hair cut off into a bob, and the public reacted like she had killed herself. <laughs> kind of in a way, she did. She felt that she was trapped in this image of a little girl, just like Charlie Chaplin was trapped in the image of the tramp. And she said, the little girl made me. I wasn't waiting for the little girl to kill me. And so that's, that's a reason for chopping off her hair. She's going to age into her roles with herself. I mean, she was 33 years old and still playing a 12-year-old on screen. <laughs> Do you remember that Führer when, um, what's her name? I didn't watch this show, but man, it was everywhere. Some character Carrie Russell played called Felicity was known for her long curls. And one day mm -hmm. the actress cut her hair short and you would have thought she had blown up something. It was all, <laughs> she's ruined our lives. <laughs> you know, um, I was reading all this stuff at the same time we were watching Little Women, and I kept wondering if Mary Pickford could have done uh, Amy, because she could be the little girl and then she could grow up. But Ooh. Mary Pickford is long gone, and there's no other Mary Pickfords in this world. No, no, no. So the public feeling around this seems to be, do not destroy the little girl with the golden curls. You're killing her. And she's like, fools, I am 36 years old. <laughs> it is time. <laughs> It is time. Well, the advent of talkies inevitably started chipping away at both Mary and Fairbanks's careers. Um, you see, like in Singing in the Rain and all these kind of movies, <laughs> the comedy of ha ha, you know, those actors sucked and couldn't make it. But, you know, the whole thing was different. And I want to remind you of the awkwardness of Mary's screen test going from theater to silent films, okay? That same awkwardness pervaded silent films to talkies. It wasn't just a matter of open your mouth and talk. The sets for a talkie couldn't be the glorious chaos of a silent film set with people yelling and everyone saying whatever and all the in-jokes and there was music to set the mood and the director could, you know, real-time correct things. No, the talkies were a freaking technical nightmare. They had to put the loud cameras in a box so that you've lost the cameraman's direction now. Where are the microphones? You had to keep your face pointed toward them because there wasn't directional capture of your voice. Keep your head still. That's weird. Are your earrings clanking? Like, take off your earrings. You had to think about stuff. You had to do retakes for things like someone's foot made a noise. You had to know lines again. Um, you know, and <laughs> old Broadway people, man, this is your time. You should show up out of the woodwork. But no one, no one knew how to be natural sounding in a talkie. So the whole blaming the actors for, quote, not having a good voice is a little tiny part of it. But really, it was a whole different thing. Well, they hadn't also been using their voices to express emotion or anything. So now they had to do all that technical stuff you were talking about. They had to do their mannerisms that they've been doing. And now they had to do different inflections in their voice and convey. I, I can't, it must have been mind blowing for them to try and coordinate it all. Well, everyone had to start at the beginning and a lot of the old stars of silent film just couldn't possibly. Here's another factor. Could not 
possibly live up to the versions of themselves the audiences had built up in their heads over this time period. I mean, it is just like when you read a book and you have it in your head how the person's going to look and then they cast someone you're like, what the heck is that? Like, Amy, you've heard our own irritation just over on the recapry with the Little Women casting. We're livid about it. (laughs) I think I'm dying over here because people are listening to our voices and they've come up with images of what we must look like and the way we look is would not live up to it is that's all there is to it so i think that's funny well mary also and this is very common but again no one knew yet mary hated the sound of her own voice um also she was just embarrassed that she didn't seem to be able to pull all this off i don't think there's a need to be embarrassed it's i mean not everyone can do everything and this is just a whole new thing and she didn't give herself any time really. So what mama said about her being so hard on herself was not a joke. She really thought, oh, I can't do this right away. Therefore equals I am a failure. So that's the real problem, not the talkies. It's the lack of confidence. Well, her first talkie was called Coquette. She was 37 and there was so very much stress on the set that Mary fired several long-term tech guys out of sheer frustration I think the curiosity factor made it box office gold and the critics liked it. But, it, mm, you know, this tragedy was just sort of a tragedy, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it doesn't hold up. Well, um, I think I read a review that said it was perfectly acceptable for its day. So that is as vanilla as a review as you're going to get. Um, it did, however, win her the second ever Academy Award for Best Actress. Not the Oscar. Not yet. This award began to be called an Oscar in 1939, officially, um, but didn't even get called it until maybe 1931. So we're still far from there. But um, maybe this award was given to her more like, thanks for all your work before, then man, was this picture great. I think I would bet money that's what it was. Oh, I... I agree completely. And it was the first Academy Award for an actress in a sound movie. So Mm -hmm. there's another first that she had. She had so many firsts. Well, from now on, really, the soundtrack to Mary and Fairbanks' acting careers sort of sounds like this. Three more talkies of middling success. And Mary decided that she was through. She said, and I quote, I wanted to stop myself before I was asked to stop. Ouch. One of the last movies that she did make, she made with Douglas. They got to work together on The Taming of the Shrew. Um, It was supposed to be a time for them to come back together because their marriage was getting crumbly around the edges. But she did not appreciate his work ethic. He came in late. He didn't memorize his lines. He didn't take it as seriously as she did. And I hate that that's part of her end package, you know, that she had this bad experience with her husband. Yeah, Douglas Fairbanks was not handling his decline very well at all. He was erratic is the nicest thing to say. He kept disappearing to Europe for one thing. Like, well, I would like to keep disappearing to Europe too, but whatever. Uh, He had some affairs. The once undisputed royal couple of Hollywood separated the same year as Mary's last movie, Secrets, which came out in 1933. And Mary filed, quietly enough, for divorce on the grounds of her husband, quote, absenting himself from their home and her society with a lack of consideration for her feelings. 
and he begged her toward the end. There's a like, so you file and you get a temporary thing. And then in a year it becomes final. And toward the end of that year, <laughs> people are motivated by deadlines, aren't they? Toward the, <laughs> toward the end of that year, he started begging her to take him back before the divorce was final. He even showed up the day after it was final for one more plea, but it was a no go. And he fled to Europe. And in a tragedy of errors, missed both her telegram and a telephone call asking him to come back. She had changed her mind and he got married to one of the women he had had an affair with. But he would come to pick fair with permission and sit with Mary by the pool just holding hands and saying nothing. It's just a tragedy. It reminds me of Lucy and Desi, kind of. Oh, yeah. Um, what a mistake, he would say to Mary. And she would just say, I'm sorry. Uh, what can you say? I, you know, her niece, Gwen, who they had brought up, said that she, Mary, was never the same after this divorce. Neither of them survived it. Um, she said they both lost heart somehow. Kind of the air got let out of their balloons. And I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, she made another try, at least another hmm, pitch. To be in one more movie, uh, she has filmed her last movie. That is not too much of a spoiler, as I'm going to tell you that Disney was considering her to play a live action Alice at 41 years of age. <laughs> uh, and the rest would be cartoons. But it seemed that I don't know what happened. Everyone was dragging their feet. Was it a matter of being polite that it wasn't going to work? I don't really know. Um, it doesn't really matter because someone else came along and scooped them with a, a different live action Alice. And the project was scrapped completely. So Mary sort of became embarrassed. I'm not sure that the Disney thing caused it exactly or just the movement forward in the movie industry. She was looking at all her former work and was worried that history would laugh at her, that her legacy was going to be as a joke person um, because some people had started showing the old silence, but something had changed with the technology. Silent films were filmed at 16 frames a second. And now... Well, then, you know, it was now at 25 frames a second. So when you played the silence back, everyone is herky-jerky and moving around in a comedically quick fashion. And she did not want her movies shown that way. She did not want to be, you know, herky-jerky joke person. <laughs> like, I don't either. You know, herky-jerky <laughs> joke person is not good. And so she started buying up copies of her movies as fast as she could get her hands on them. And she told everyone she was going to burn them all in her backyard. And some alarmed friends begged her, oh, my God, please don't do that. Please. It is like your legacy. It's your history. It's the history of motion pictures. Ugh, so whatever. She stuck them in a storage room instead. Also to their detriment. More on that later. But at least she did not burn them in the backyard. So, yeah. <laughs> I can actually kind of see her thought process on this one because she was such a perfectionist that when she looked back at her other work, that it just didn't look like the kind of work that was being produced in the sound films. It was at this point because technology and, you know, everything was so much more advanced. Right. So they might have made her cringy. I know that feeling. You know that feeling? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's called the first 10 episode feeling. <laughs> yeah, so I can kind of I can kind of see it. Well, Mary kept her hand in producing and writing for movies and was sort of seen as, I guess, the only thing I'm going to compare her to here. You know, our modern, recently um, departed, much mourned Queen Mum. 
like a delightful and quaint mascot of bygone days, almost, even though she wasn't that old. Well, it's better than the nothing burger old Douglas Fairbanks seemed to have ended up with. Still, I don't know that it is that glorious. So Mary was going to try some other fields. And she wrote a novel called The Demi-Widow that did okay. And then she wrote a couple of religious... I don't know what even to call them, textbook things for Christian science, which she had taken up with, along with spirituality and tarot cards. She did turn her creative hand, question mark, on a uh, book. It was kind of a spiritual self-help book called Why Not Try God? It was ghostwritten, but it was her ideas. And I tried to read it and I I just... it's not good. I wanted to say, oh, it had a lot of inspiration to it. But it, no, I didn't get past like the second chapter. And she had another thing that she was turning to for solace. And that was those bottles that she had left all over the house. It started to creep out of the shadows. I just, it's a family legacy, I guess. Douglas Fairbanks was remarkably abstemious. And I'm wondering if that's how come their family was so dry in public. You know what I mean? Mm. She moved forward with other endeavors. She had a short-lived radio show (laughs) that might have been a little tone deaf during the Depression. It was, uh, I forget the name exactly. It was like Evenings at Pickfair. And it was all about mm, like a Martha Stewart level food and drink and decor situation at the house while people were in breadlines outside in the real world. So... I can see why that got pulled after a while. (laughs) It didn't even, I think it lasted 13 episodes and that was it. Yeah, it just was a little bit not sympathetic to things that were happening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At 45, Mary married her longtime admirer, former co-star and recent-ish beau, Buddy Rogers. He was her love interest from her last silent movie, My Best Girl. You know, by the way, ever since that movie came out, My Best Girl, which was so very well received that everyone started calling Buddy Rogers America's Boyfriend. That Uh was a very well regarded movie. So here's the queen of the movies or the former queen. Honestly, at this point, I think it was the Dowager Queen um, (laughs) married America's Boyfriend. So, you know, we're still good. We're still well thought of. She wore a sky blue dress with burgundy hat and gloves and evidently had giant cold feet upstairs just before she came downstairs like that is a theme girl you know listen to your feet (laughs) (laughs) i don't know this time i don't think she had to listen to her feet well i know but it's like not a good sign when you have a panic attack upstairs i just don't know (laughs) that's true that's true (laughs) well he was 33 and absolutely beaming she's always been my best girl and now i've got her well that was nice that was super cute I love seeing them together. He's just such a nice guy. At this point, he's doing less acting and he's a band leader, um, but he's just bouncy and just a really nice guy. And he he clearly adored her. So I liked it. I thought that was it was a good match for her, for him, too. I actually saw, again, great parallels between this man and Lucille Ball's second husband. He he's not in the industry, you know, anymore. He is destined to be the companion. And you know what? He's okay with that. And if you called him Mr. Pickford, he would just smile. 
That's good. That's awesome. And he could move into Pickfair. He was cool with it. So Mary began a column. She's just uh, trying a lot of stuff. Uh, Mary began a column for the New York Journal newspaper, not about herself at all, but uh, about New York in general. There was, you know, crime, current events, interviews with prominent people, including, here's an episode tie-in, the family of the new U.S. ambassador to Britain, Joe Kennedy and family, not Jack and Unfortunately, though 12-year-old Robert Kennedy was quoted as saying he was excited about his move to England. <laughs> and we know what happened then. Speaking of former episodes, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor visited at Pickfair. They were guests. That's episode 94, Wallace Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of tie-ins once you get to a certain level of fame, weren't there? Yeah. Well, she tried and failed to get a cosmetics company off the ground. Mary really is just putting a lot of irons in her fire. She's exhausting me. It's almost like she's just throwing... It's not spaghetti against the wall, is it? To see what sticks? I think so. Oh. I think it's like she's getting older. She realizes it. She's accepted it. It's kind of like, okay, what am I going to do for this last end game? Let's try everything. Uh, Yeah, I can see it. I can see a lot of people trying it. Hers was just on a bigger stage. Well, Buddy volunteered when World War II began and was a pilot in the Navy. And while he was still serving, the couple adopted two children. This blew my mind. She is 51 years old at this point. She's never had children. The only child that she's had in the house was Gwen. And that was kind of a shared custody situation. Mm -hmm. But she says, oh, I need to be a mother. That's what my life needs at 51. So she goes to an orphanage and meets a six-year-old boy, very charming, and adopts him. They name him Ronnie. And then within a year later, she goes to an orphanage again and adopts an infant girl and names her Roxy. Without talking to her husband. (laughs) He was gone. He was on duty with the Navy. And she did not tell him she had adopted a little baby. And here, I can't even get a secret kitten past the committee here. (laughs) She comes home with a baby. And I'm sorry to say that. Okay, remember that Mary had a mother that was practically her best friend. And I'm not sure what happened to that influence. It seems to me... And maybe I'm just being harsh that both Mr. and Mrs. Rogers were extraordinarily distant parents. Yes, they're older. They're entrenched in their ways and independence and children require a lot of attention and energy that they just I don't think they realized what it was going to require. I mean, after these kids were grown up, I'm not sure they ever talked to them again. It's weird. It's weird. The little kid son and baby daughter were great in photos. And then just this, uh, mm, you know, like, I don't yeah. know what it is. Throwing money at the problem thing and even not that much money either. Okay. But I thought of it also like Queen Elizabeth and her children. You know, they had nannies that took care of them and they saw them a little bit and for pictures. And then as soon as they were old enough, they went away to boarding school. That's exactly what's happening here. So maybe that royalty parallel continues. Hmm. So um, I'm sorry, again, to say there seemed to be some sort of alcoholic or just frustration rage thing happening. It's a little bit of bad treatment of Buddy Rogers, I think. Uh, She often called him Douglas. And I think on purpose. I Um, thought it was when she had been drinking. Yeah, I think, yeah, there was a little bit of on leashing of rage in public on him they were at a party and buddy was trying to talk and she screamed at him why don't you stop 
buddy. The guy you're talking to has more intelligence in his little finger than you have in your whole body. I don't know why you ever try to talk at all. And the whole room would freeze. And then all buddy would say, he would like laugh and go, oh, that little Dickens, she's always making jokes or whatever. But that is uncomfortable and not good. And he should not have been treated that way. No argument from me. Some of their friends had said that each of them wanted to hurt the other one. And there were sharp words at the dinner table. And here's the thing, though, that Buddy Rogers was not an alcoholic and he was not a drinker. And there's got to be a certain point where you snap, where the treatment of you behind the scenes is just Uh really too much. The scales tip, you know, if you have all this good stuff that happens in your relationship, that's holding the thing up. But once the scale of bad things happens and they're equal, that's when it tips. And I think that's probably what happened to Buddy. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, scales. That's it. That's it. So yeah, he, I'm sure he snapped, as do a lot of people. She was also mean to her one true friend, Frances Marion, had come to a dinner party all innocently. And um, Mary Pickford came down the stairs and saw her friend among the other guests. I mean, her friend is mingling, has her glass. It's the, uh, you know, the little cocktail hour before the dinner. She had been invited and Mary screams at her like, (laughs) what are you doing here? Get out of my house. I don't want you here. In front of everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. And later she did send a note of apology. It says, I'm so afraid that I might have hurt your feelings the other night. You think? (laughs) And I have to tell you, that went from a close friendship to this one mm, kind of distant, like, I'll send you a card on your birthday type of thing. I don't blame Francis Marion at all. No, no, I don't Um, either. um, There was also a disagreement with Helen Keller, of all people. Mary put forth to Helen Keller and her secretary that she would like to do a movie in which she played a blind person. And to that effect, she would like to learn some things from Helen Keller, would she come by? And she did visit Pickfair. And um, Mary had sort of promised a large contribution to benefit blind and deaf children, which really never materialized. And no one's obliged to give their money to anywhere, but it seems odd that she would go to all that trouble and then sort of act like she forgot about it. I don't know. I can't imagine. But we did cover Helen Keller, too, in in another episode, as well as Amelia Earhart, who also visited Pickfair. There's a video of that one. When Mary was 64, she sold her last bit of stock in United Artists. That was in 1956. So she had been in the movie business for a long time, but that was her last tie to the old stomping grounds. She focused on her charity work. And she served with President and Mrs. Eisenhower on the White House Conference on Aging. She traveled with Mamie Eisenhower selling U.S. savings bonds for a while. She did a little tour with her. Interesting combination. (laughs) Mary Pickford and Mamie Eisenhower. When she was 69, she got an honorary doctorate of humanities from Middlebury College for, quote, her lifelong dedication to causes and actions of benefit to her fellow man. And at 70, she got one from 
Emerson College in Boston. This is what they said to her during that ceremony. As one of the most popular and best loved women of history, you've thought not of yourself, but have directed the great weight of your influence toward the promotion of countless humanitarian causes. In the support of your country in time of national stress and crisis, you have given us physically of your energy and talents. In the midst of a busy life, you have found time to share your rich personal insights through the writing of significant books. Has she? And now, laterally, in the relative new field of geriatrics, you're providing important leadership, especially in your work with housing for senior citizens and the White House Conference on the Aged. Toward the end of World War One, Mary had headed this committee that raised lots of money for ambulances as a gift from the motion picture industry. Fortunately, they didn't have to spend all that on ambulances and they had a lot of money left over. And Mary suggested that this leftover money should become the start of what she called the motion picture relief fund to care for our own people who need help. And her goal, um, which took years to accomplish, but it was right about now, um, was to build a country house for the elderly and ill actors and other movie workers. And she started a program where employees of the motion picture industry that were above a certain threshold would, as a general rule type of thing, donate a percentage of their pay to a certain fund to provide for the indigent among them. And it was a low percentage, like a half of 1% of your salary to this program. And she used to host benefit radio shows that also would raise money for it. And the motion picture Country Home, which actually has a screening room in it, which is, um, you know, because that's what you do, was built and also a hospital was added to it later for that purpose. And uh, Mary Pickford is credited as the founder of this home. She also was instrumental in creating a Jewish retirement home and funding system after, and she herself says this, she blames herself for uh, an insensitive remark toward a Jewish actress and her embarrassment at herself and her apologetic feelings about that insensitive behavior caused her out of guilt and remorse to be instrumental in that program and house to be built to house um, elderly Jewish people. I wish that that part would go along with anyone who says, oh, you know, Mary Pickford, she was anti-Semitic. Well, yes, she was at one point, but then she did all that because she knew how wrong she was. You know, that happens to so many people. They did something at some point in their life that was really not cool, like anti-Semitism. And then they realized how horrible it was. Their mind went in the right direction, but nobody ever remembers that. All they remember is the thing they said. So, and you know, I don't know what you can do short of having a time machine, but that's what Mary Pickford chose to do with her feelings of remorse. And um, it ended up being a very tangible thing that benefited a lot of people. So that doctorate was not misplaced because she really had focused on um, elder care as she was approaching elder status herself. Mm -hmm. Her last public appearance was at 73 for a Mary Pickford film retrospective being held in Paris by the French government. Mary said on this occasion, I have received many honors in my life and I have had audiences with kings and queens and the world's greats. But this tribute touches me most of all. Last night, my heart 
sang. She was amazed. They showed 50 of her movies at the proper speed. (laughs) Um, No one laughed. Everyone was very respectful and realized what they had just seen. And I can only imagine for someone with her fears, that was a very touching and delightful tribute. I'm very glad. I am too. And it wasn't just like a film festival. This is a around the globe. There were theaters that were showing her movies simultaneously. But then personally speaking, she started to go downhill. And there is a 15 year period here where she just withdrew into the house. Not many people were allowed in. Some books just state that she stayed drunk all day. I would like to put forth, I mean, I don't know about the drinking. I wasn't there, but I would like to put forward that it was the first experience with the fickle nature of fame. The public forgot about her gradually, but completely. And and now, you know, we joke about people showing up on Hollywood squares or whatever the modern equivalent of that is. It always happens to me when I see that somebody dies that I thought it already died. Yeah. So, you know, whatever the modern equivalent is, I can't imagine it hurts any less when people say, you know, Madonna who? Like, That's not a good example. I don't think Madonna would ever let that happen. But, um, you know, OK, so she has the same sort of thing as an example. Madonna worldwide phenomenon. And now there's maybe really young people who don't know who she is at all. Mm. Well, we talked about this during the Lucille Ball episode. The same thing happened to Mary. I don't know if it's depression. I wouldn't blame her if it was. It's it's a big letdown from the heights and there's really no blueprint for you. She had tried many things and the public just didn't take her up again. And I just think she was very hurt. Uh, Major Hollywood events happened and she received no invitations. Books were written about the history of Hollywood in which her name did not appear. Ouch. I know. So she did receive another Oscar in 1976 when she was 84 years old. She was not going to go to the ceremony. So the ceremony kind of came to her. They brought in cameras. And this was the first time that anybody had seen her in years. And if they had that image of a young Mary Pickford in their head, they were shocked at what she looked like because she was an old woman now. She had a wig on. Her speaking was kind of slurred, although she did have some sparks of spunk in there. If you watch it, I I had to watch it twice because the first time I was so sad that that was what she was like. Um, Then the second time I'm like, okay, she answered that funny. That was that's there's spunk in there still. So maybe it takes a couple watchings. But she did um, get an honorary Oscar for her contributions to movies. It's sort of like the very last Dick Clark New Year's Eves. And it is a little uncomfortable to watch. Although it really, you know, it really shouldn't be. People age. It happens. She was as sparky as she could be at 84. But her appearance caused sort of a backlash. Hey, how dare you take advantage of this poor woman. And you can watch and we'll provide you a link to the whole Oscar ceremony. There was the little retrospective, like a slideshow before they cut to her at the house. And I just don't know if it was that contrast that was making people shocked or uh, one critic called it, quote, the most pornographic moment in the history of television. And I've certainly would not go that far. No, not at all. But what I'm saying is I wish that everyone had bothered to keep in touch this whole time. This is a little too little, too late for somebody's psyche who you've left alone for too long, Mm -hmm. I think. So that is what I'm saying. And that is what I'm seeing. Yeah. So it kind of makes me a little irritated at society, by the way. (laughs) 
after that, Mary descended into mental instability. I have to say she has days where she was lucid. She had many days when she was living in the past. Douglas Jr., who was always a welcome guest, although he lived in England, so you know he didn't come that often, would be talking to her and then suddenly realize he would go, oh, honey, I'm the other Douglas. She kind of forgot she wasn't married to Douglas Fairbanks anymore. She would live in the past, which might have been a happier place. I don't know that I should pity her for it, but poor old buddy, man. He was loyal and loving and took care of her as best he could with a staff, of course, but really no friends around to help or take the pressure off him. We always forget about the caregivers and um, poor buddy, man, had a burden. He did. Uh, he took it willingly, and um, but he was as loyal as could be. Yeah. In 1979, she experienced a stroke and was rushed to the hospital. Uh, she went into a coma and died two days later on May 29th, 1979. Her death certificate says she was 85, but in reality, she was 87. She was buried in a locked section of Forest Lawn Cemetery, which to me says somebody knows she's super famous. Um, the last one of her little family to join that plot, actually, because Mama and Lottie and Jack had already preceded her and were already there. In her will, she left some things to the Smithsonian. She did give some to her two children, which we seem to have forgot about because they weren't in the story. Um, not a lot, and it was in probate for a long time. So it was what they actually ended up getting was not much. Uh, she also set up some trust for Gwen's children and grandchildren, which was nice. But Buddy got everything else, real estate, art, some cash. Pickfair, however, was sold and the proceeds went to the Mary Pickford Foundation. I will say, though, ultimately, uh, several owners later, Pickfair itself was bought and knocked down by actress Pia Zadora and her husband in 1990. How dare she, really? And talk about someone where you're like, who? Yeah, Pia Sidora was one of those people that you now have no idea who she is, do you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many of uh, Mary's work has been lost. Early movies were filmed on a nitrocellulose stock that was not only extremely flammable, so thus subject to fire, but it was not very robust. It was prone to self-destruction if no one else set it on fire. Most of what Mary had bought was just destroyed by air and time. Even though the Library of Congress eagerly began to restore anything she released to them, there is a large, large hole that people began to realize too late that there was in the history of film. Some reputations are ruined by destruction, and this might be one. Her contributions to film should be remembered and discussed and, you know, argue the merits like we do anything of modern pop culture. But so much of what she did is lost forever. There's only remnants left, only the shadows left. And I really, really want to urge you to go see clips from especially My Best Girl. I think it's the most relatable to a modern audience. It's not the melodramatic nonsense that is in your mind. Hardly any of it is, actually. <laughs> so um, I think your idea of Mary Pickford will change once you see her in motion. It's genuinely good and touching acting and artwork. My other two favorites, I guess if we had to pick them for different reasons, there's um, Sparrows, which is kind of super dark, kind of dark. The whole premise is that she is the oldest orphan left at a baby farm where unwed mothers would send their unwanted children and typically these children would be very poorly treated and starved to death so it was escape from the baby farm swamp 
yeah, but nevertheless, that's kind of a good horror type movie. And also, I like um, a movie called Suds, where the um, captions are written in a Cockney accent. That's hilarious. Like, nobody <laughs> had to bother working on the accents because they just write them that way. She's a laundry maid um, who is trying to meet with the gentry and marry a uh, titled nobleman. But yeah, there's a scene where she gets buried in a box full of shirt collars and it's just, it's kind of slapsticky and um, I don't know. It's kind of a good example of her comedic timing, that one. I liked The Little Princess. There's clips of it out there and we'll link you up. But it gave a really good view of how she was acting as a child, but as a grown adult. She was 25 when she did it. And she looks, she does. She's a very credible 11 year old. And it's just just to watch her like just the subtlest little uh, motion like in her shoulders or a certain bounce to her step or the way she holds her back, her posture. It's just very childlike and not affected at all. It's just effective. And, you know, uh, people kind of how about this for a tie in kind of said that Shirley Temple was like the reverse of Mary Pickford. Shirley Temple was a actual little girl who acted like a grown up in kind of disconcerting ways sometimes. <laughs> and then here's Mary Pickford. That was a full grown up that knew how to act like a child still. So they're the polar opposites of each other. So that's all that we have to say about Mary Pickford. I I just more than any other, I normally don't pressure you to go out on your own and learn things. But as this is such a video medium that she worked in, obviously, there's no sound for us to even play for you. Not that we could get the rights. The Mary Pickford Foundation is pretty cranked down on um, even photos, by the way. So there'll be minimal photos over on the website. But um, I just really think that if you see it for yourself, you're going to change your mind about Mary Pickford and her value to the movie industry. I agree completely. Okay, well, now it is time for media. And as usual, we are going to start with books. I had a big stack, but I'm going <laughs> to winnow them nice. down. Um, okay, so I would say... Of them all, I would say that the best, it's pretty detailed, the best general biography of Mary Pickford that I liked is called Pickford, the Woman Who Made Hollywood by Eileen Whitfield. Uh, I just it's feel like it is pretty thorough. It'll give you, you know, of course it goes into the movies, um, which, you know, kind of get a little bit like, yes, I know, I know. Okay. You know, after like the first hundred. <laughs> 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 but I know I, I liked that one as a general purpose biography. And it's actually the most recent of the biographies. So it's I don't know if that makes a difference or not. Um, now, sometimes I like reading the older ones because it's people that were alive or at least mm -hmm. involved in the culture when the person was involved. So they, I don't always want to discount the older biographies because a lot of times they had access to source material that the new people don't have. So. Right. That's true. Um, the other biography that's out there on her is Mary Pickford from Here to Hollywood by Scott Eyman. Um, But again, that's like it's like 2003. It's not that old. You can always read it from her own words. Mary Pickford's autobiography is Sunshine and Shadow. <laughs> and uh, as autobiographies go, as they always go, um, go ahead and get your salt shaker out because you're going to be taking <laughs> grains of it. 
Um, now, how about this? For a little slice of what is arguably the most famous section of her life, it's called The Most Popular Couple the World Has Known, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks by Booten Herndon. That is a name. Booten. Um, and it simply covers that period of her life and is a full-size book. So the details in this situation, if you want to know about the royal couple, are within these covers. <laughs> well, there was one book that I just loved looking at. It was Mary Pickford, Queen of the Movies by Crystal Schmidt. It's huge, it's heavy, and it's chock full of pictures that are just wonderful quality and just beautiful. So I, I had fun with that one. There is another coffee table type of book that I could barely hold up as I'm trying to do right now. It's called Mary Pickford Rediscovered Rare Pictures of a Hollywood Legend by Kevin Brownlow. And in part of this, it goes through all the movies and all the plots, too. So if you are interested in the movies, per se, this is the book for you. If you're interested in just the stars of the silent films, there's Silent Stars by Janine Basinger. Um, it opens with Mary. I think she gave nice little bios on them. You know, a lot of times these compilations are just a couple pages, but she gave pretty thorough biographies of each of the people in the book. So I thought that was really fun. There's another book. I can't honestly recommend it as light reading. It's really not an awesome book. <laughs> However, I did power through because it was written by Mrs. D.W. Griffith. Linda is her name. Um, his, quote, secret wife. <laughs> <laughs> they were married, but they just didn't bandy it about. It's called When the Movies Were Young. Um, there are some things, especially in the first half of this book, that refer to Mary Pickford and the way that Mary came in to the biograph studios and some things about their early life that may or may not exactly explicitly include Mary Pickford. But it was things about, you know, traveling arrangements budgets for meals, you know, behavior, recycled things they had to use all the time, that kind of thing. So there's like a little window if you're interested in just the way that it used to be when it was still like this merry band of hippies walking around. Th this book has details in it. It's a little hard to read because it's written in like vernacular, like she's talking to her friend or whatever. So but I got a lot out of it anyway. Mm. A fun one I had not run across this book before, I don't think. Celebrity Death Certificates by M.F. Stein. It's just the actual death certificates in this book. They're just all the, all kinds of people. It's I don't know <laughs> if you like that kind of thing. It's, I thought it was fascinating. That's dark. I know it is dark, but it's also cool. Uh, historical fiction one, it's a fairly new book. It's called The Girls in the Picture by Melanie Benjamin, and it focuses on the friendship between Frances Marion and Mary Pickford. Um, I thought it was fun because I love reading stories about women's friendships like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, women who have worked together. Maybe that's just because you and I work together. Um, Melanie Benjamin did quite a bit of research for this, and it shows. And please don't miss... The Fabulous Moving Pictures, a Discworld book. And if you're not familiar with Discworld, brace yourself. There's a lot of them. If you're a fan of satire or things that have Easter eggs sprinkled throughout them for you to discover, this book is for you. It is actually one of my favorites in the Terry Pratchett Discworld universe. As to websites, we would be 
fools not to send you to marypickford.org, which is the home base of the Mary Pickford Foundation. There are a lot of resources there. They were not very forthcoming with letting us use pictures. <laughs> so we have our beetly eyebrows shaped like a V at them right now. <laughs> but nevertheless, we recognize that they are the worldwide authority on Mary Pickford and respectfully send you in their direction. Yeah, there is so much on that site. I mean, not just pictures, but stories of little parts of her life that you can't find anywhere else. So, of course, they're all told as a pro-Mary stance. So there's not a lot of the ugly stuff of her life wrapped in there, but it's still a lot of information. There is a video on YouTube of the honorary Oscars award ceremony that I do not like, and I don't think Susan likes it either, but in case you are interested, um, we will link you to that. And there's also a PBS American Experience that covers the history of Mary Pickford's films. Um, and again, you should go find clips of My Best Girl, Suds, Sparrow, um, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm is a good one. Do you have another favorite beside any of those? Oh, uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy, where she mm -hmm. plays two roles. I, you know, the story, whatever. But she plays two roles. She plays a little boy and his mother. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, I will tell you, every every single time I get to Suds, I can't find one played at the right speed. So I hope um, we can find one that's played at the right speed and not too fast because it really does make a difference. Oh, it does. I completely agree with you. Uh, there is a Mary Pickford cocktail. It's an official Mary Pickford cocktail. It is rum and pineapple juice and grenadine and maraschino liqueur. And it was invented for her in the 1920s in Cuba when her and Doug and Charlie Chaplin were there. Now, I will tell you, it calls for Luxardo. And I think no household in America owns Luxardo except my household, which is a very <laughs> strange remnant of many bars household so if you don't want to spend the 37 dollars to make this cocktail on one bottle of luxardo because you don't don't be tricked by it being called maraschino liqueur it is more almondy and you can get by with substituting amaretto oh okay good thank in you in that recipe it will save you so much money and you can use amaretto for so many other things so the end. <laughs> I just don't want you to spend so much money on Lixardo um, and certainly blame it on us. Yeah. That's the kind of hints that people can use. <laughs> just a little life hack for you. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the up and down, gloriously trailblazing life of Mary Pickford. And in closing, I would like to end with... A comment from one of her directors and her response to his comment. He said, she knew everything there was to know about making a movie. She could do everything. She was a walking motion picture company. She was one of the finest characters I ever knew and a clever businesswoman, too. To which Mary replied, I have always taken an active interest in my films from beginning to end, from the script down to the editing and titling. I tried to learn everything I could about making motion pictures. I was simply a student of my art. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, the app formerly known as iTunes. Don't forget to join us over on the History Chicks Podcast Lounge on Facebook. What you do is go to our Facebook page 
and simply click the button marked Join Group. Everyone can talk over there, so it is a fun place to be. You can interact with Susan over on Twitter, and please make a special point of going over to our Pinterest board. Our Mary Pickford board is full of images that we were not able to put over on the show notes, so I didn't want you to miss that opportunity to see all of that material. Special thanks to Lowen Henderson and Jet and Chris Graham for their help with the 30-second summary today. We would like to give special credit to Kevin McLeod for the silent movie soundtracks. Used by permission under Creative Commons License 3.0. The closing song is Made of Stars by Xavier and Ophelia, courtesy of Music Alley. The
a no brainer. Oh my God. Somebody else is going to get that. But you have to wait. Is that your landline? Shut up. <laughs> yes. 